Sound design. I would like our DMB users to be thinking more about the artistic goal and making adjustments based on what they're hearing and not getting lost in the science and the measurement and the verification. We're trying to build a platform that doesn't require that and we can just focus on mixing our show. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by Advanced System Specialist at DMB Audio Technic, Nick Malgieri. Nick, welcome to Sound Design Live. How's it going, Nathan? Going good. Just for you, I, I see that there are some special tools here that I have that would really welcome you. <laughs> Wow. Right, that's the last time I'm going to do that. <laughs> do we need a director to call uh, sound effects on this show or what? <laughs> Stage manager. All right, Nick, so I definitely want to talk to you about object-based mixing, in-fire arrays, and combining speakers from different families. But before I do that, after you get a sound system set up, what's one of your favorite pieces of music to play through it to get familiar with it? Actually, the first thing I usually play isn't music at all. It's a, a very simple recording, a very dry recording of a simple snare drum. Uh, for me, that's a great way to check system timing. And when we play with soundscape systems with emulated room acoustics, it's a good way to hear the nuances of reverb tails and stuff like that. Cool. I, I would actually like to add that to my list of things. Okay. I'll send you the link. Snare drum sounds. There's a couple of things. I'll send you a couple of things. Great. Okay, so we had a lot of questions come in. Um, so we've got a lot of technical topics that people want us to hit. But before we do that, we should talk about career and business stuff for a minute. I wondered if you could take a look at your career so far, Nick, and pull out some lessons that you've learned and that have helped you find more of the work that you really love. So what are some of the ideas that you can share with people that might help them look beyond maybe some of the typical front of house mixed positions that people think of and just maybe some career advice that you have found over the years? I think probably the first thing I like to tell people is, uh, Never in my career did I get hired off of a resume submission. You're saying that my plan to just make a beautiful looking resume and, and send it out to everyone and then do no follow up is not a great. <laughs> yeah, correct. Great yeah, not recommended. Every single job offer I got was like a verbal offer off of someone that I knew or met or we knew someone in common and I came as a reference or something. So I'd say as general career advice, just be around people make friends with people, make connections, find an excuse to visit a company, find an excuse to visit a show site. Maybe you have a friend with an in or something, shake hands, make your smiling face known, and just be the person who is on the forefront of their mind when they're in a last minute scramble and need somebody. Yeah, that's a great point. If Pro Audio is based on personal referral, that's such a great point about staying top of mind. How can you do that in uh, sort of non-manipulative and fun way, showing up, being places. Yeah, that's great. Like we're not, it's not a recipe, but it is something that is probably the opposite of just me sitting here at home waiting for the phone to ring. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, there's a lot of markets in audio other than like touring front of house engineers. Tell I mean, me about it. What What are some things I may have forgotten? Let's not, not forget about. about the in-house gigs right in your hometown. There's a lot of performing arts centers, clubs, all that kind of stuff. And there's a whole other world of audio called installation, which, by the way, was largely unaffected by COVID. And a lot of people from the touring world just segued right over to installation. And only some of them are going back out on the road now that they've gotten used to spending the evenings at home with their families. Now, is installation a place where I could continue working as a freelancer or is it mostly employees? And so should I be going and looking at job boards or, or looking at their websites for openings? How do you recommend I get started with that? The installation companies are probably more likely to accept like a cold call resume if they have an opening, but knowing someone there is still going to be the inside track. And in my perception, there's two kinds of audio installation companies. You have ones that maybe also have a touring division and really specialize in performance audio. And they have staff on hand that are audio ninjas to be able to you know, really do high-end systems. Then there's a lot of installation companies that are really just responding to bid requests 
And they've got the labor for the physical installation, the rigging and the wire termination and all of that stuff. But they might not do performance audio systems frequently enough to have an audio ninja on staff. And a lot of those companies are either uh, leaning on manufacturer people like me to come help commission it or a freelancer to come in and be their ninja for that one-off gig because the other five gigs are going to be like, you know, low-voltage alarm systems and camera systems and stuff like that. Maybe doing a little bit of research could help, or at least knowing going in, oh, this is a place that focuses on performance audio, or this is not, and then coming into that conversation intelligently, hey, I know that you guys don't focus on this, and so I could really bring that to the table and, and be helpful in that way. Yeah, that's right. Can't just ask for a job. You have to propose your value to somebody. So figure out what they're missing and what you can provide for value. Now, when you proposed to your wife, was it similar? You're here is the value. I bring this cow. I have a car. No. Yeah. So you have Uh, something like that, right? Okay. Let's talk about technical stuff. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to sound system design? I think the most common mistake always happens on show site and it's just poor prioritization on how to manage your time. Like what? Like spending too much time thinking about what's happening on a smart trace and not enough time thinking about just having a good physical layout of speakers or maybe this isn't a great time to make noise because I'm pissing off other people who are working in the room. Hey, I've got a rigor in the air. I probably shouldn't be blasting the speaker next to them. Or just spending too much time tuning a PA and not actually getting to a sound checkpoint, which ultimately it's just as important as tuning the PA. Let's just get it most of the way there. And if we find some time later, loop it back and do some touch up. What What is the bad thing that's going to happen if I don't prioritize my time correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, if you can't prioritize your time uh, and manage it, you're going to end up missing meals or something. And that makes a long day extra hard and unhealthy. So let's take care of ourselves at some point during the day. Also, you just you need to be thinking about what's the content for the show? How am I going to mix it? How am I going to route it? All of this kind of stuff. What is the artistic priority as opposed to trying to make a PA perform, quote, perfectly on a screen? Now, I'm remembering back. I remember you have a pretty good story about prioritization and its relationship with smart. Do you know what story I'm referring to? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Love this story. I and we were we're good friends with the folks over Rational Acoustics that make the smart software. And I had a really fun experience when they got a DMB PA and I was going to come out and help them tune it. And first of all, there's a little bit of pressure because I use smart sometimes for tuning. And the last thing I want to do is get caught using it wrong in front of the people that make the software. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys are going to provide the smart rig. They're like, yeah, sure. And, and I showed up and we had two days allocated for commissioning and training and all of this kind of stuff. And because of scheduling and travel conflicts, day one, I was working with Jamie Anderson from Rational. And on day two was Chris Andrews from Rational. And so two days, we got to tune a PA with two separate people that work for the company that makes the tuning software. (laughs) And I showed up to a very well-installed PA. First thing I did is make noise come out of all the right places and verify that it's wired correctly and stuff. And then we had the standoff moment with each other where it was like, so how do you want to do this? And they looked at me and how do you normally approach this PA? And so we started to get into it. We walk in the room, making some changes by ear, showing them how rate processing works and this kind of stuff. And after the end of day one, they were like, this is great, let's go to dinner. And I realized never once had we looked at smart. Wow. It was sitting there running. We, the mic was there. We just never placed the mic. We never did anything. We never mm-hmm. heard something that we needed visual feedback on to correct. And so then Jamie leaves and day two, Chris shows up and Chris is like, I don't care what you did with Jamie yesterday. Let's like reset it and do it again. And so we tune the whole PA <laughs> differently, but in a similar style, using our ear, okay. walking the room and never once looked at smart. And it was a really good reaffirming moment to me that even the people that design it, they like to say there's no such thing as smarting a PA. It's a tool. Use your judgment. Be influenced by the artistic goals of the show and the logistic constraints of your venue. And smart is there if you need it. Yeah, that makes me think that the audio analyzer, maybe I should be thinking about it more as a verification tool, as a problem-solving tool, and less as uh, a qualitative tool that says, I'm going to tell you what's good, Nathan. And I'm like, okay, all right, audio analyzer, you tell me what's up and I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard really well measuring PAs that I don't like the way they sound. And I've heard very poorly measuring PAs where the second I I 
push up some channels on my mixer. I'm like, this is great. I love this. So yeah, nothing in an analyzer tells you how good it sounds. Okay. During the last Live Sound Summit, you gave a great presentation called The Self-Aware PA System and the Future of Live Sound. And if people want to listen to that, they can go to livesoundsummit2021.sounddesignlive.com. But a couple of follow-up questions about that presentation. If you say that the most destructive part of the signal chain is between the loudspeaker and the listener, then what is the most powerful tool we have to deal with this destruction? Yeah. And just to clarify that, these days, the year 2022, we have these pristine signal chains of all digital, high bit rate, low noise floor, virtually zero crosstalk. And then the sound leaves the speaker and we're still subject to the same pesky physics that we've always been subject to. And we can only control so much of that. And that is what is turning into feedback That's what turning into poor intelligibility, you know, lack of impact, all of that stuff. The best tool for us to avoid this, this, you know, primary source of degradation is directivity. The more that our loudspeaker can focus sound where we want it and avoid all other directions, reflective surfaces, and open microphones, the better the PA is going to sound before we've touched an adjustment at all. Wow. Okay. And so what are some of the specific ways that DMB helps us with directivity? On the subwoofer side, it's all about cardioid subs, not just to cancel sound on the rear at some frequencies, but equally across all frequencies. So that mm, even if okay. you are on the backside of the sub, you're still getting a proper representation of the frequency response, just quieter. Then we have the SL series line array cabinets, which have side firing low frequency drivers that not only add more energy to the front, but cancel on the back, which is great as you walk off axis on one of those arrays, all frequencies get attenuated evenly. And then even on point source cabinets, we rely a lot on what we refer to as a dipole, which is two smaller low frequency drivers instead of one larger low frequency driver. And those two smaller low frequency drivers are spaced out in the cabinet so that they create summation directly on axis, but cancellation in other directions. Not only do we get good directivity out of the frequencies coming out of the horn, but we get added directivity of lower frequencies as well. Cool. Okay, so another thing that you said during that presentation is that array processing reduces or eliminates the need to measure the PA on site. And that connects with one of the questions that came in from Chris Metters, who says, I'd be curious to hear how accurate he feels the phase prediction feature is when measurement values are precise in the field, and how effective it is for eliminating the need for TF measurements in varying varying size rooms. A funny way to say that. And the subject he didn't mention there is, I think he's referring to array calc. Would you agree? Yeah. So it sounds like there's two questions there. One is about array processing, and let's put a pin Mm -hmm. in that for a moment. The other one is about the ability to tune your your PA quickly and accurately within the software before you're on site. And to answer the question simply, I have never found a discrepancy in what the alignment says in a rate calc versus what I found on site. Even when I put up a mic to verify, it's within 10 degrees of phase wrap between the subs and the tops and anything there is couldn't be much more perfect. And why would I want it to be more perfect at a specific location? Anyways, the idea of alignment is to make it work for as large a portion of the audience as possible. And one of the main benefits of using the software to do this is you can very quickly, with a couple of mouse clicks, pick multiple points for your measurement microphone and verify if the timing decision you've made translates not only to the 100 level, but also to the 200 level and the 300 level. Whereas if you're on site with a microphone, that just turned into a 45-minute process just to get the mic from the 100 level to the 200 level to the 300 level. And who's got time to do that when tuning? You load in at 8 and sound checks at noon or something. So it allows you to be more informed from the comfort of your home. And as long as your file is accurate to the way the PA is deployed on site, you just push those settings to the amps. And then bust out smart if you find yourself with some extra time and energy that day. Now, array processing is very similar. For anybody who doesn't know, array processing is our technology where each cabinet within the array requires its own DSP path and amp channel. But this allows every cabinet within the line array to have a different signal sent to it so that the behavior of the array as a whole 
matches the geometry of our venue better than we could with just mechanical splay. So this means we need to have an accurately represented array, right? Proper height, proper splay angles, all of that kind of stuff. And within the array calc file, we need to make sure we have accurate venue geometry. Then the software can say, okay, now I know the relationship between the PA and your audience areas. Let me optimize myself for perfect, you know, spectral response from the front row to the back row. This does a couple of things. One, it corrects for weird HF peaks and dips and all the stuff. It fixes far field HF reduction because of air absorption. And it makes the PA hit a target curve at the listener positions. So it will hit the same target curve in the front row as it does at front of house and at the back row. And if you have array processing enabled on other parts of your PA, like delays and sides and 270, all of those parts of the PA are now hitting the same target curve at their respective audience positions. So this way now, you don't have to worry about level matching and spectrum matching different parts of your PA, which is the biggest part of measuring the PA. Now you can just say, oh, the whole thing is too much low mid. I'm going to pull out some 250 hertz and apply it to all parts of the PA. And they're all going to respond much more similarly than they would without array processing. That's so cool. And, and I'll just add that it is really fun to, uh, and so powerful to be able to check all those different alignment positions really quickly. If you're like me and you want to try to calculate the best alignment position ahead of time, and then you do that and however you do that, then you just have to accept, like, okay, this is going to work. It's really nice in a ray calc that you can then verify, oh yeah, this is the right one. Okay, great. And so I like that tool a lot. Yeah. There's only one gig I've ever had where I really cared about making the whole system align in one specific mic position. And in a previous lifetime, I worked for a rental company out in California that Meyer Sound used to hire for their internal events, like their parties and stuff like that. And then my question was always like, where does John Meyer sit? He's the one whose <laughs> name is on the check. He's the one that can hear the difference. Let me make it align there and everybody else can just deal with it. Tell us about the biggest or maybe most painful mistake you've made on the job and what happened afterwards. Uh, what's the old joke in our business? I've screwed up bigger gigs than this one. Expertise. What is it saying? Wisdom comes from expertise and expertise comes from failure. We can do these one-liners all day long, but it's true. Yeah, I've... I've Making the mistake is the way to learn and be a better person. And we all, we've all done them. I was working a show. We we're loading it in. I was working in the doghouse of an analog console, if anybody remembers what those are. And I was pretty pissy. It was a rough day. It was a gig at a winery where we loaded in on grass. And I was trying to figure out how to make this console sit level on a grass embankment next to the stage. And it was hot. There's mosquitoes. I'm just pissy. And the voice behind me, someone on the stage, it's empty. There's like no audience. There's no artist yet or anything. But this voice is like, how are you? And I was like, this is fucked up. And, and I, I just <laughs> totally went off and just like verbal diarrhea on how I was feeling and turned sure. around. And it was the main headliner artist singer of the show <laughs> and was like, oh, God, what have I done? And he ended up being really cool. I hear you, brother. This is a hard work environment. Just keep going. I really appreciate it. And that, that was when I turned around. Who would say something so nice? <laughs> realized that it was the artist. Because he, he could have been like, who is this guy? Get him out of here. Totally. And that's all it takes. Just rub someone the wrong way. And he's he's thinking about his pressures of performing and he doesn't want my negativity involved. And I'm the monitor engineer. So if I'm going to be like that during rehearsal, it's going to ruin his vibe. And so he could have just said, yeah, get him out of here. And then that's it. I'm fired. And once that happens, you never get that gig back. You know? I, I don't know if this is great career advice, but a friend and, and student of of mine got a new job once and it was a really important one for a big well-known company and i said hey i think one of the best things you can do from my experience is to figure out as quickly as possible what things are going to push your buttons and then figure out how to deal with that because the worst thing is that it becomes a surprise that's when it's really painful is yes all these circumstances yes all this pressure and stress and then also a surprise like something falls on your foot or something is late or whatever, things go wrong. And so if you can sort of get ahead of that somehow, man, it can really help because that's the difference between um, saying something you really regret to a manager or something. And then, and then you have a whole thing to deal with. <laughs> totally. I feel like one of the best professional advances I've made came as a byproduct of moving to the Southern US where I just had to learn how to keep my mouth shut more than I'm used to. <laughs> 
I think people in the South tend to be a little bit more cordial, a little more polite, and they complain in a different way. And, and that's been a good career and life skill for me. Christian Jira says, what is the best theme for a bar and why is it tiki? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the what is he I, talking about? Yeah, one of the things I miss most during the COVID era is uh, hanging out in some town where there's some trade show like Infocom or NAM or something and ending up at tiki bars with Rational Acoustics guys. Okay. They, they love a tiki bar. I love a tiki bar. And we need to get back to those trade shows just for the tiki bar. I couldn't care less about the <laughs> trade show. As soon as five o'clock hits and we're all looking at each other, am I going to get a blue drink or a green drink? That's what the, that week is all about. So Chris says that you seem to do a lot of traveling and consulting. And he has uh, it's this question that I'm going to paraphrase, which is basically, how do you handle these situations? Or, or have you been in a situation where it seems like the client wants something and they're saying, this is the result that I want. And so here's how I want to do it. But you know, that's not going to get them the result. Yeah, that's the hardest thing about audio, right? Human beings are visual thinkers and audio is invisible. So everybody has an idea of how to do it, and there's no real way to prove it. And even your average person might not know how to listen to the PA to know if it was achieved or not. So it's all like being a bartender and playing psychology and just having good verbal interactions. And there's a way to advocate for what you think is the right decision without knocking down a client's request. I think there's a way to verbalize that There's a certain approach. Just don't be the, don't be the annoying IT guy who's just, no, that's not how it works. You don't know what you're talking about. No one wants that kind of audio person. Just speak normally with them and say, ah, so what I'm hearing is repeat what they're saying. It makes them feel heard and say, how about this? What if we tried an approach to do this and explain in simple terms why you want that approach? And I find it's really hard for a client to to argue with that, it almost makes it feel like it was their idea to approach it the way you want to approach it. And you've told me in the past that a raycalc can be a tool to facilitate these discussions. Sometimes it really helps to have a, a visual element. This is mm -hmm. what you want. Here's how we can do it. What about this? What about that? Small churches and clubs and venues that want a line array, but it's too small of a room for a line array. Let's oh, look right. at it in a raycalc. <laughs> Let's show you how a line array performs versus a point source. And it, it will be immediately apparent that, that there's a really good discussion there. And if in the end you want a line array, whatever, it's your PA. You can buy whatever you want. But at least I advocated for what I think is best. There's a bad movie podcast called How Did This Get Made? And I don't listen to it that often, but it, it comes to mind in this moment because there are, we've all been in music venues all over the world, but even here in Minneapolis, I've been into several music venues where the PA does not fit the room. And you're like, how did this get made? There's <laughs> these two big arrays, half of it's just playing into a balcony and a wall. And it's, it's, a, it doesn't seem to fit. It's funny. This is the number one theme of being a support person for DMB Audio Technic, because our whole goal, our whole design ethos is little light and loud. How do we get good, you know, very high directivity, high bandwidth and high output out of the smallest cabinet possible. And our clever Germans do a pretty good job. Meanwhile, we have people coming and saying, I don't want that speaker because I don't think a pair of 10s are big enough woofers, which used to be the simplest method of evaluating a loudspeaker. And you have to explain to people, no, you don't understand. This pair of 10s has more low frequency extension than our old speaker that had a 15. So you're you fighting know? some preconceptions about just things people think about the size of related to power or quality. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Christopher Poe says, what does a typical mix bus section on any given mixing desk look like when in an object-based uh, mixing environment? So let's be clear. When you're using soundscape and object-based mixing, there is no master bus in your console. We need different performers, different types of signals to hit that processor. The processor works as like a summing matrix with the spatialization data and renders that to the PA using delay on the level distribution. So then, yeah, this is a great question. How do you feed the processor from the console? Uh, the short answer is there's no one way. There's no one way to soundscape, but I could give you a very kind of simple anecdote that represents a lot of projects that I work on. Let's say that's a typical band. Uh, so maybe kick snare hat, come out of a mono bus and sends to a processor where we can place kick, snare, and hat within our mix using a sound object. Then maybe a stereo mix that has all of the toms and other drums 
those come in as two sound objects and we can make those toms big and wide or accurate and sound like they're coming from the drum set. And then maybe another stereo bus for overheads and chimes and percussion stuff that maybe wants to go wider than the toms. Then maybe you have a, a bass player who has an electric and an acoustic and a DI and a mic and, and a, I don't know, foot pedal organ thing or something. Those can, all those inputs can come down to a mono bus called Bob the bass player. And then Bob, the bass player's bus comes into a sound object that we control in R1 called Bob, the bass player. And we can place that where Bob is located. Might do the same thing for guitars, keyboards, bust them down, but then send them to the processor in a way that represents an individual performer. And then as you get to your money channels, your lead vocals, your pastor mic, your CEO for the corporate event, those might be post fader direct out of the console. All your channel strip processing works. Your fader affects the level of that, but it immediately leaves the console and gets summed in the processor where each singer can have their own sound object. That way, when people sing together, they're not stepping on each other in the mix. When you want to listen to the alto or the tenor, you can demask it binaurally, just like we do in an acoustic world, and retain clarity, headroom, and require less processing on the channel strip to get it. Related to this, Gabriel says, I'd also like to know why some deployments are not using the desk as the control of the objects and what the pros and cons are of this approach. Yeah, so if you have a soundscape system and you're using an, an Avid S6 series console or a Digico SD series console, you can control soundscape natively from within the console. And I know it sounds awesome, and it can be. Your object parameters are being saved within your scenes of the console, and that's really nice. But... For in a large venue, and we have a hundred feet of travel where the sound object could be through the mains and maybe sides if you have them. And that hundred feet is now represented by a three inch by three inch quad panner on your screen. It, it's not as meaningful as you would think. The scale uh, is off. <laughs> right. And we can scale the stuff separately from what the console sends into what the processor receives. But yeah, three inches to represent a hundred feet is pretty coarse no matter what. So I always tell people, let's think of it as like a waves control computer. Let's just have our one running on a touchscreen hovering right over your console like your wave screen does. And you can just touch the object to move it. You get a full-size screen. You can visualize the room better. You can put in a seating chart so you really know when you're placing a sound object exactly where it is instead of just placing it in this vague square on the console. Peter Jorgensen says, what happens when you build an in-fire array with a cardioid subwoofer like the SL sub? Yeah, I've done it with the SL sub and other okay. subs and from other manufacturers' subs. Because I'm not just a DMB guy, I'm also just a sound guy. It works well. It's cool. You don't have to make an end fire out of omnidirectional subs. And you can mock this up in array calc. There's this myth out there that you can't do end fire subarrays in array calc. You most surely can. It will automatically calculate your delay times for you as well. And if you want to learn more, send an email to support at dbaudio.com and we'll show you how to do it. But to, to answer the question, yeah, we have some cabinets that are cardioid by themselves, and then we put them into an end fire. And of course, it depends on your spacing and the number of cabinets within the array and the delay times, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially, it turns it into hypercardioid. And I did it. I do a, a gig every year, the Monterey Jazz Festival, and I run the main stage there. And I do an end fire of cardioid subs. And the reason is twofold. One, it's a wooden stage that resonates I think it's right at 78 hertz. Oh, wow. Like yeah, and it rolls pretty slow. It used to be years ago, the stage would hear the feedback long before front of house did, and they would just hit the call button on comm. And if I was at front of house and saw that call button lighting up, I would just immediately pull the subs back <laughs> because I knew it was coming. <laughs> and so when we put our subs in an end fire array, it allows me to change the delay times so that I can take that 78 hertz null and point it directly at center stage so that it's just, it's really trying to cancel that one frequency in that one direction to stop the stage from resonating and that feedback. And the second reason I do it on that gig is because I don't have anywhere else to put the subwoofers. So it's a win-win in that I can't stack them high because it blocks sight lines. I can't do them horizontal across the front because their VIP section would be like, their knees would be touching the subs and they wouldn't be very happy about that. So they have to be up on the deck, but only one high. And so then putting them one in front of the other is the only way to make them fit. 
All right. Johannes Hoffman says, what's the minimum distance of a cardioid sub to reflecting services behind the sub to avoid cancellation in the low end? Yeah, this is a really common question, and I totally get where it comes from, because when you have a speaker firing in the back of the subwoofer, it seems like it needs some breathing space. And it does, but not as much as you'd think. You can actually, all the DMB cardioid subs, they have the casters on the backside, so you flip it up to roll it. So then when it's lying down, the casters point backwards, and I just tell people, push it all the way up till the casters touch the wall. It only needs that four to six inches that the caster represents. Okay. Wow. However, most people don't realize when you have a cardioid sub, you really need to maintain two feet of open space to either side. It actually needs more space on the sides than it does in the back. And that's because we need the sound to wrap around the sides to interact properly between the rear driver and front drivers. So for example, we see people all the time that might have like an SL sub, but they've decided to place it up on end. So it's higher, maybe that because they want to put a front fill on top of it or something. And it works and you can do it, but it, it eliminates one path length around one side of that cabinet because the side is now obscured by the ground and undoes a whole bunch of the cardioid effect. And it ends up turning into kind of like a, a, a loose cardioid. And you can see We don't it want loose, calc. we want tight. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. In a rate calc, you can select between an SL sub and an SL sub upright. And you can look at how that affects the rear rejection. Okay, Istvan says, when will games be available on D40 amps? So this is news to me. Apparently there are games on some amps, but not on other amps. Tell me about that. Yeah, all uh, DMB amplifiers have games built in. And you should know that... If you perform a firmware update on a DMB amplifier, it will reset all the settings as you would expect with a firmware update, except for its IP settings. So it doesn't reset the network card, which is very convenient. And it also does not reset your high scores in the games. Oh, critical. And the even the really old amps had simple games. Then we came out with the fancy four channel amps with the color touchscreen and the games got way better. And now we have this brand new amp platform that I suspect will eventually get the games. But to be honest, our software team's been working really hard making all of the audio features work correctly in the brand new amps. And I would rather they prioritize that than the games <laughs> at the moment. Uh, so Thomas wants to know the highest scores in the D80 games. And I'm guessing these amps don't report back to you and you don't have a list, but it does. I think we were talking about how it'd be fun to have a leaderboard so we could see who self-reported who has the highest scores. Yeah, or log it within R1 since you're already on the network with your computer. So, so you can have like your own list. You don't have to go back to the AMP to find your high score. Yeah, report it back to dbaudio.com so we can keep track of who's winning the games. <laughs> we also get a feature request quite often that people want to be able to play multiplayer games across the network on front panels of amps so that the oh, stage right fun. fly guy can play against the stage left fly guy during the show. Benjamin Tan says, how does engaging array processing change your tuning approach? Look, it's all part of the PA performing nicely and more like each other. So even if we have a main hang of 24 GSL and a side hang of 12V, those are voiced to the similar target curve. So I don't really have to worry about matching curves, even other different box counts and splay angles and box type and all that. And it's doing things like mostly or completely fixing the kind of HF peaks you get right down in the front row underneath the line array, that kind of Fresnel effect. It gets rid of that, which by the way, really resolves feedback issues if you have an artist that ever goes out on a thrust in front of the PA. It fixes the HF absorption issue in the back rows, so I don't really have to worry about tuning for that. At the end of the day, I just need to voice the PA overall for whatever my overall mix is going for. And we already have controls like a coupling filter is what we call it in R1, where we can change kind of the overall voicing of lows to highs. Do you want a flat response or do you want the haystacked low end for a lot of power? And we can just make those broad adjustments and then maybe put in an EQ filter or two, depending on what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing and you're done. And if you've done all the alignment and rate calc, we don't need smart. I let, you know, Soundscape systems are similar. This is why I talked about the self-aware PA. When in Soundscape, the processor knows where every loudspeaker is located and how it's pointed. And so it times itself. You never enter a delay time into a Soundscape system. 
it realigns itself based on where you want the sound to come from. So I would like our DMB users to be thinking more about the artistic goal and making adjustments based on what they're hearing and not getting lost in the science and the measurement and the verification. We're trying to build a platform that doesn't require that and we can just focus on mixing our show. Yeah, that's cool. It sounds like there's this idea of letting the computer do what computers are good at and let's have the humans do the creative decisions that the humans are good at. I love it. Michelle or Michael says, is there any plan to incorporate polarity inversion for the design of complex subwoofer arrays like Gradient or InFire into array calc? And they are expressing this sort of surprise that I remember having as well the first time, the first few times working with DMB systems and realizing, oh wait, there's no way to, to insert a polarity inversion. But referencing back to the clever Germans, there must be uh, a reason for excluding this. Yeah, we don't have a polarity button the amplifiers and the filters available to you within R1 uh, do play with polarity as needed to get the behavior we want out of the cabinet. And this is a contentious issue. We're used to having a polarity button, and why would a high-end manufacturer like DMB just take that feature away? And in general, this kind of comes back to this ethos that I just described, where we're trying to do all of as much of the science as possible for you ahead of time so that when you get on site, you can focus on your show. And for the vast majority of applications, there's absolutely no need for a polarity button because we already have cardioid subs. We already have full broadband directivity. We already have all these benefits built into the PA as is. And we all know a lot of sound engineers that can dig themselves a hole pretty quick by hitting polarity buttons and not entirely knowing what they're doing. With that being said, I, I do recognize there are like kind of niche setups where this would be handy. And if you want this as a feature, please don't be shy. Send us an email, support at dbaudio.com. And what would be really helpful is if we could understand what you're trying to achieve that requires you to need the polarity button, because we're really good at trying to figure out what you're really asking for. And if there's a setup that you want that's common, maybe we would think about just building an amp preset or something to achieve it so that you don't have to know how to use the polarity buttons and it just works. But either way, I'd, we'd love to hear from you. The feature requests are always welcome. Support at dbaudio.com. Robert Kozira says, how to identify the problem speakers in a large array hang? And he so he's referencing uh, a feature in DMB where it has some self-verification built in. And he, I, he also told me later about sometimes he had maybe trouble where he felt like maybe some of the speakers were not making true reports because maybe there was a reflection because they were too close to the ground. But anyway, maybe you could start by just talking about this self-verification feature that, that is built in. Yeah, another excuse why you might not need a measurement, Mike. So when we go online with our DMB system, with R1 talking to the amplifiers, or even without R1, you can do this through the front panel of the amplifier, uh, there's a function called system check. And this will send almost inaudible low tones and completely inaudible high-frequency sounds to the speakers. The amplifier then measures the return impedance and will graph out the impedance measurement of low-frequency and of high-frequency and of a rear-firing driver or a mid-range of that cabinet to verify that all of the drivers are operating as a circuit correctly. So this tells us if something's plugged in, it tells us if there's a broken wire, it tells us if there's a blown voice coil, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and it makes it very quick and easy without making any noise to verify that every speaker is performing electronically up to spec. Uh, now this doesn't test for things like a uh, torn cone or a cabinet rattle or that kind of stuff, but we're gonna get there once we start making noise. Uh, so we run system check that verifies the electronic circuits. Then with vertical line arrays and sometimes other types of arrays, we run a test called array verification, which is just about the most clever thing I've ever heard of. It Because we designed a system in array calc and opened that same project and R1 now knows what amp channel is supposed to be driving which cabinet within our line array. And it initiates a test process where the amp channels one at a time will make a low level kind of hum noise. And while this is happening, it uses all of the adjacent loudspeakers within the array as microphones. Oh, that's cool. 
right? And so by the time it runs this whole test, which takes 10, 20 seconds for a large array, it will tell you if your line array is wired the same way it expected it to be wired based on how you built your file. And with technologies like array processing, if we had a pair of cables swapped within our fan out, this could have horrendous and unpredictable results. So making sure that every box in the array is actually fed by the right DSP channel is crucially important. So not only will it tell you if it's patched wrong, it will tell you how it's patched wrong, which cables are plugged into the wrong cabinet. But what this user is referring to is we have seen times where people run this test before the PA is at trim height, which is floating right off the ground. And some of those bottom cabinets are basically firing right into the floor. And this can create reflections, which throws off the test. Mm. And in my experience, it's only happened with J-series. There's something about the LF sensitivities of that box that make it have this issue. And as soon as you take it like more than six feet off the ground, then you can run the test without that reflective floor being an issue. Daniel says, how do I combine speakers from different series with unmatched phase response like the T10 and the Y7P? And he sent me a couple measurements and I was like, I wonder if those are correct. And I looked them up on the DMB site and they were. Yeah. Talk about combining speakers from different families and different series. Yeah. There are manufacturers that when they come out with a new generation of loudspeaker, they adopt a new phase profile. And this makes it hard to incorporate newer systems and legacy systems into the same PA. Our approach is to try to keep that phase plot as consistent as possible over the years. Even when we came out with newer amps that are you know, more highly capable processing-wise, we didn't take that opportunity and just change the phase response of existing speakers. We wanted it, a J-series on a D80 new fancy amp, to be exactly the same as a J-series on the old two-channel amps. We lock in that performance and make it consistent across the world, across the decades. And mixing most DMB loudspeakers works really well right out of the box with complementary phase profiles. Now, there are exceptions. The T-Series is a great one. The T-Series has a very unique acoustic mechanism that affects its phase profile. And here's how this works. So the T-Series, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a small speaker, and it's convertible between a point source and a line array box. And it has a rotatable horn that doesn't just turn the dispersion on its side. It actually changes the way the horn interacts with a secondary acoustic lens, which you can see on the front grill. You see these kind of stripes, this different perforation hole pattern on the front grill. And behind that front grill is a multi-layered grill. And these metal, you know, it's perforated metal grill stuff, multi-layered, actually affects path length of high frequencies. So when we turn the horn and it changes the way the HF dispersion interacts with the secondary perforated metal mechanism, it changes the path length of high frequency and changes the curvature of the wavefront. So a point source speaker radiates an outward rounded wavefront. And when a T-series is in a point source mode, it's 90 by 50, I think. And then when we turn the horn and we turn the cabinet, it's now 105 degrees wide by a proportional vertical directivity with a flattened wavefront appropriate for a line source. And the way this works is because of this perforated metal slowing down HF frequencies by extending their path length, which is why the HF phase profile of a T-series changes depending on the mode it's in as a byproduct of this mechanical system. And yes, we do have the ability to change it with fancy technology that's in all these amplifiers, apply some FIR filters, all-pass filters, all this stuff, but it would incur latency. So now we have part of our PA at a different latency than the rest of the PA, and it would make T-series on new amps be different than T-series on old amps, which is not something that we want to introduce to our users. So people ask me all the time, though, this is such a cool thing. How come you don't do this T-series rotating horn perforated metal thing on all the speakers? And now you know why. <laughs> there is a downside. Yeah. And it works well for a small speaker like a T-series, but that's not something we want in our stadium PA. And I remember you saying that in, in the rare occasion that you would need to combine these two speakers, you just need to make a choice, right? Yeah. So what part of the frequency bandwidth do you want to have it be aligned? Do you want it 
for good LF steering and the kind of low mid and lows want to be perfectly aligned or is the T there for intelligibility? People commonly use a single T series in the line array mode as a high powered front fill. And in that case, we really care about the HF. So let's make the HF part of the frequency response align better for alignment with our main system. So yeah, you make a choice. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch in audio. And if you want like a cool feature like point source to line array, which is highly valuable for small, mid-sized rental companies, then you got to give something else up on the other end. In this case, it's a you know non-complementary phase profile. Yeah, and I'm sure there were conversations on the production side before anything ever happened where they're like, okay, if we do this, then we'll have this consequence. And they said, it'll be worth it. And, and there right. we are. And that's, that's just another reason why DMB makes a hundred different models of loudspeakers so that you can pick and choose these these trade-offs as needed for your application. Sunny says, why have external amplification rather than built-in amps? Sure, the timeless debate. I see strengths both ways. I used to work for a rental company, a couple actually, that only had self-powered speakers. And from an inventory management point of view, it's perfect because you never have to think about, I'm sending this many speakers and so how many amps do I need? And every speaker is an amp. So problem solved, send them out. Don't have to think about it. On the other hand, if you're a rental company, it's a lot more expensive to have an amplifier for every speaker. Whereas a lot of rental companies have enough amps to run the A system or the B system, but they never have to run them at the same time so they can buy half as many amps. So there's that stuff from the commercial side. Uh, then from the technical side, of course, having an amp and a speaker makes it way more. And the question is, do you want that weight in the air or do you want it on the ground? And amps do fail from time to time. When that failure happens, do you want it in the air or do you want it on the ground? You know, being able to hot swap an amp without having to bring in a rigger or a lift is pretty valuable. So there's positives and negatives both ways. I like having one type of cable go up to the array instead of signal and power. I like having the electronics down on the ground where I can monitor them more easily and troubleshoot them more easily. I like having a lighter array so I can get away with using less rigging and all of that stuff. The roof can only support so much or whatever. So having a light array allows me to use the array I want, not the array I can hang. So that's Easy for me to say I work for DMB. You know? <laughs> and one interesting point I hadn't thought of before that I remember you telling me about is that if the amp weighs more, then the rigging also is going to weigh more because it has to be higher rated to be able to carry heavier weight. And so yeah. it's not just this increase in the weight, but also then the whole thing goes up. Let's say we have a really big line array, a maximum hang of 24 boxes. And Germany decided, actually, for this crossover, we have to use this coil of wire instead of this coil of wire. And the coil wire they want to use is two pounds heavier. Not only is the box two pounds heavier, but the array is now 48 pounds heavier. And because the array is 48 pounds heavier, the rigging has to be upsized to hold 48 more pounds. But not just the rigging at the top box, where the extra 48 pounds happens, but every box has the same rigging. So every box has to have upsize rigging to hold 48 more pounds. That upsize rigging now also added 48 more pounds, which means the rigging has to be upsized again to hold an additional 48. It's everything's interconnected. So literally every ounce we can shave off of a speaker means a hundred pounds in the end or something. Maybe that's exaggerated, but it's not just an individual box. It's quite a lot. And the amp then at an additional 20 pounds per box is a pretty massive hurdle. So my friend Steve Knott says, what do you think about renting cranes to hang PAs rather than rigging them from truss? And I said, what specifically do you want to know about? And he said, I've seen photos of big festivals where it's being done already. So I'm curious about the whole thing. Safety rigging for crane lift, stabilizing, aiming the array, and of course, security around the crane base to make an unclimbable fence wall type deal. Seems innovative. Yeah, I love it. It's not new either. I've been doing this for years, before line arrays even. Like all rigging, as long as it's done safely by a qualified and experienced professional, I think it's wonderful. Personally, I think cranes are a little ugly. So the aesthetic of a giant yellow tractor isn't my favorite show business aesthetic. But... It certainly has logistical benefits. It's a lot cheaper than paying a crew to come build a tower. I've done a lot of outdoor shows where the PA really needed to be in a place that was not 
um, conducive to rigging, like on a slope. And with a crane, you can rig it and then drive the crane into position or turn the crane into position. So that's a huge benefit. And it can be totally safe. I strongly suggest at night between days on site, you bring it in and touch the PA to the ground just in case there was a hydraulic failure at some point when you're not there. A lot of times these hydraulic systems, they can have a very slow leak and a regular operator wouldn't notice because a regular operator doesn't use the crane to just hold something in the air for four days straight, but it can slowly droop. So let's be aware of some things like that, but yeah, have a great time. Also driving cranes and forklifts and lifts is just super fun. (laughs) Speaking of driving forklifts, I know you have used some MSL fives, I believe. Can you talk about that for a second? The MSL-10. MSL-10. These yeah. giant Meyer sound speakers. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very, I don't know. Meyer's an old company, so I don't even know if I'd call it an early Meyer speaker, but they're long gone at this point. But they were so large, a single MSL-10 barely fits into a 53-foot truck. Like, it clears <laughs> with a couple inches on either side. That's how large this giant array speaker is. And it was brilliant in that they built uh, slots for forks from a forklift into the speaker. So you drive the forks into the speaker. It's now rigid on the forks. You, you pull it out of the truck, you drive it in a position, you take it up in the air and you turn off the forklift. Congratulations, <laughs> your array's hung. So from a logistics point of view, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. The sound quality could probably be debated. It was still innovative for the time. Believe it or not, the first place that I worked for when I moved to the Bay Area had some. They got them secondhand somewhere from someone else. Right. Good times. The last time I was using them was like the amplification for NASCAR, where it was. it's really about vocal band, blunt force SPL. It's not exactly a nuanced show, and uh, they want it cheap. So being able to rig it without a single hand or crew person helps that be a cheaper installation. It was a great fit for that. Okay, Wesley Stern, what is their philosophy with main sub crossover? It seems to me that they let their subs low-pass filter be much higher than other companies, well above where the main cab's high-pass filter is in most cases, resulting in a lot of low mid-summation. I really enjoy their systems and the perception this results in. So he likes that bump in the crossover range. It's it's a bit of a misnomer out there that DMB doesn't allow you to mess with the crossover. Uh, we do, but in limited ways. We don't allow you to actually visualize or adjust the slopes, but we give you buttons that allow you to tailor the crossover point. And this user's right in that the subs generally go higher in frequency response than most users prefer. Uh, we leave it available to you if that's your approach. But depending on the subwoofer model, it will either have a button called 100 hertz or it will have a button called infra. Both of these, they lower that low-pass filter to cut out some of the upper bass. 100 hertz is approximately 100 hertz. Infra is closer to 70 hertz, but changes based on the capabilities of that subwoofer so that you can throttle down the frequency response of that sub and let it focus on the real low stuff, which is more common these days. And conversely, all of the high mid boxes have a button called cut, which is a low cut. And it moves up the high pass to cut out some of the low end response at the top. And between these two buttons, we have four options on how to run this crossover. We can have summation in the crossover point for additional power. We can carve it out to have a little bit less magnitude in the crossover point because maybe we just feel like it's muddy in that room or with that mix or any combination thereof. And we just toggle the buttons until we like how it sounds. And we have confidence that we haven't skewed the phase response or made some kind of other compromise because the predetermined friendly buttons that are still compatible and you don't have to think about it. Vladimir says subwoofer drive sizes and uses. Is there a trend of releasing 21 inch subs, not just from DMB, but other brands too? Did the needs of events change to drive this trend? I don't think the needs of the events have changed, but DMB has gone to generally larger driver sizes than we did in the past. And this is because I think it's less about the needs of the act and more about the capabilities of the speakers. That's the thing that's changed. When we had the J series, the kind of gold standard DMB large format PA. The tops could go down to, I think it was like 90 hertz or something. Then we had a J sub that was 318s. 
and a J-Infra that was three 21s. Uh, and a lot of people ran the systems without 21s because the 3x18s was enough low end. Uh, personally, I think once you hear one of these big PAs with even just a single infra, it's hard to use it without because that extra low stuff really feels good. But the reason why there were two models of subs was because the 18-inch drivers could go fast and be high impact, but they couldn't go very low. Whereas the 21s could go really low, but they couldn't go fast and be high impact. And what's changed is voice coil technology, like pr- particularly with the SL series. Uh, that whole voice coil magnet structure is really re-engineered and requires a higher voltage to the voice coil, which the DMB amps are capable of providing. And all of this in turn allows a main speaker that goes down to 45 hertz. So we got rid of the upper bass requirements out of the subarray. And allowed a 21-inch driver that now has full power, even at full excursion, which means as that speaker pushes out, it still has full power to get pulled back to its neutral position as quickly as possible. So now the 21-inch driver can go faster, like an 18, with higher impact, which allows us to be like, oh, if the 21 can now do the upper bass and the lower bass with more impact than the J-Series could do total, this is a huge win, let's go with the 21s. So now that SL sub with three 21s not only has the same frequency response as a J sub and a J infra put together, but has almost identical SPL output as a J sub and a J infra put together, but weighs less than a J infra by itself. Okay, so there were some rumblings on Facebook. It seemed like there were a couple of people who were like, something about they don't like... DMB phase response, and they're like, something about it makes them upset. And our assessment of that is maybe this trend in the market towards flat lines, magnitude response, phase response. And so I just wanted to give you the floor on that for a minute to maybe address what you think are some of these preconceptions. Yeah, I think we've seen a big marketing push from some manufacturers who are making their phase response, quote, more linear. Uh, that is to be like more of a flat line without wraps in the phase response. And DMB isn't is not doing this. We're not into it. We don't like it. The reason there is we don't really believe that you're hearing much of a difference in the end. I, we think it's more of a, a visual improvement than a sonic improvement. And there's no such thing as a free lunch in audio. So just because we can preemptively mess up the signal in exactly the opposite way that the speaker is going to mess it up, doesn't mean we get that for free and doesn't mean that we don't incur other side effects in the process. And the main obvious one when it comes to fixing phase response is latency. I think Meyer has a really cool product called the Bluehorn that has a very flat phase response down like 50 hertz or something. And it's very cool. But as a, a necessary compromise there, uh, that speaker takes 50 milliseconds for sound to come out. Five zero, right? Chris from Rational says, yeah, if you want the bass uh, to come out the same as the high frequency, you need to think of it like a restaurant. If the high frequency is your entree, the mid-range is your appetizer, and the bass is your cocktail, you can have them all at once. You just need the kitchen to keep your cocktail and keep your appetizer until the entree is ready. And so same thing uh, with FIR filters and fixing phase, right? We just, we need to make the high frequency wait, and then we need to make that mid frequency wait until the low frequency is ready to come out of that FIR filter. And then we can align it. And then you end up with 50 milliseconds of latency, which for Bluehorn is totally fine because that is a post-production studio environment product where latency isn't an issue because it's all playback. A concert, on the other hand, is a different story. That snare drum already stopped by the time 50 milliseconds <laughs> goes by. Yeah. Maybe there's situations where you could argue that's okay and the, that latency is still good. But this does come back to my earlier point too. The DMB amps have all the ability to make flat phase response right now, as is. And we could fix it. It takes one of our DSP people like five minutes. It's not hard. But then that speaker on a D80 will sound different than the same speaker on an old D12. And this is a world of change. And in the end, we don't really think, we think if we did two versions of the same speaker and we AB'd them, one had a flat phase response, the other one didn't, that you wouldn't pick the right one if asked to in a blind test. Nick, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and follow your work? You can find me on social. Nick makes it louder 
on Instagram. <laughs> See some pictures of some DMB rigs, a whole bunch of soundscape systems. Otherwise, feel free to send me an email. You can send an email to support.us at dbaudio and just say, hey, Nick, I had a question about that thing you were talking about or tell me more about this. Mm-hmm. Anybody anywhere in the world can send an email to support at dbaudio.com. Tell them where you live. That email will get sent to your local support team in your time zone and your native language. Also, we have a ton of uh, tutorial videos at dbaudio.com. Everything from software use to rigging. And uh, hey, come and say hi. See me at a trade show. If those uh, ever start up in post-COVID, come say hi. Otherwise, I'll see you on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, the tiki bar. Yeah. Yeah. If you bring up the tiki bar thing to me at a trade show, there's a good chance you'll end up drinking tiki drinks on a (laughs) DMV credit card. Well, Nick Melgeri, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Thanks, Nathan. So much fun. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis, Learn Stage Lighting, Ross, Joel, Bob, Roadie Free Radio, Scott, John, Dave, Jim, EJC Audio, Carl Hines, Andrew, Yusuf, Dave, DC Sound Op, David, Darren, Terry, Seward, Ozon, and Sven. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $5 a month over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.